Welcome to the Daily Into Theology. Two days in a row. Oh, listen, we need, to, we need to deceive our, our, our listeners <laughs> and record it in a week and make it seem like we did it a week. Oh, I mean, yes, this will be next yeah, week. So not the ne- not, since, not since we recorded last week. Yeah, since so, last week, it's been so long. The, even best, though... the best deception would be is if we recorded back to back and we just ran and changed our clothes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah that's true. We have the same background, so we're yeah. we're there. Uh, we are studying Thomas Aquinas' Summa. We are in, I guess, I can't even remember how to talk. Book one, questions four, five, and six, right? Is that what it is? Right, yep. On perfection and the goodness of God. We were talking about how it's a little hard to quote something from Augustine because he's like... Augustine. First of all, it's Aquinas. Augustine. Second of all, we're talking about Aquinas. <laughs> Whoever we're talking about. I can't... We're out of practice. We're literally, man. before we recorded, we were just sitting there talking about Augustine. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whoever this person is, this this angelic doctor of sorts. Um, but uh, I think we'll just kind of just talk through it together. So we might as well start with perfection. And there's one thing I want to say, then I'll let you kind of riff from there. It's yep. Although these are almost like, you might say these are almost philosophical questions like, is God perfect? So interesting that um, Aquinas answers this question by first going to an authority. In this case, it's the Bible. So he says, look, there's all these objections, like maybe God's not perfect because what's perfect is if you start imperfect and become perfect, etc. There's lots of ways to think about it. But really, the Bible says in Matthew 5.48, be you perfect as also your heavenly father is perfect. So God has to be perfect. So what is so then he goes, how do I make sense of that? And he does by using the tools available to him. And in this case, one of the tools available to him is Aristotle, as well as some of the other ancient philosophers that he quotes, like um, Pythagoras and, I don't know, Leucippus? Leucippus, whatever. Leucippus was uh, an ancient atomist, so basically like an ancient atheist. Yeah, but it's it's just interesting. So he's just the way he does authority, because sometimes I think you can have these conversations, and he's obviously very brilliant, but you sort of forget that he is... uh, part of the order of preachers and he's training preachers and uh, to be anachronistic Bible counselors. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and so you read, you actually read this, you have to realize he's still a Bible guy, but he's particularly able to think beyond just the basic categories to show how all of life, how every thought needs to be brought captive to Christ. Yeah, and it's interesting too because what he does is it, it it comes hot on the heels after these three objections, right? So the question of uh, the first article, question four, whether God is perfect, any of these three objections that you know would have been objections that were real, he didn't just make them up, is from his vast vast studies, and then his response to the objections, even though he will reply to each one in kind. Uh, but kind of like the immediate response is, uh, on the contrary, actually, the Bible says this, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then he's like you say, he's trying to then make sense of what the Bible is saying in terms of like how it hits the ground in reality. And so then he's going to then explain it. And he's using, you know, the metaphysics by Aristotle and whatnot. Um, but or even Gregory yeah. the Great in his Moralia, yeah. it's commentary yeah. on Job, the Moralia, and it's focused on the you know, beyond just the basic sense of Job, but it's just interesting. He has a wide range of people that he knows and can, can help him to think about what the Bible says. Yeah. Yeah. These ones are fun too. I, both, both the, the question of, of divine perfection and God, you know, what is goodness and then God's own goodness. The, these are things that 
when I'm reading Thomas, where I get like really excited, I'm like, wow, this is so fun and cool, like to think through this stuff, you know, like even before we're talking about divine simplicity, like I, I really like how he's, he's thinking through why God's not a composite of form and matter or why he's not a composite of existence and essence. Right. And, and you're just like, wow, these are just such, such cool ways to think about God that, that you don't hear, you know, your average evangelical talk like that, you know? Well, what I found is that what's so satisfying with Thomas is that he just, he makes sense. And a lot of his observations, once you finish reading them are like, oh yeah, that's obvious. But on reflection, that's why he's so brilliant because it's obvious after, after he states it, because he says it. So in a very, like, just for example, on uh, whether all the perfections are in God or sorry, whether any creature can be like God, which is on page 89 or the third article of question four. He's like, well, look, God's obviously not the same species that we are. And therefore, there's no specific likeness between God and creatures. He's not part of the same genus that we are. And therefore, yeah. there's no generic likeness between God and creatures. Right. He dealt with in the simplicity. Yeah. Thing. This is why God's not part of the same genus. We're not, he's not the right. highest in the chain of being or something like that. But it also kind of makes sense. Like two species uh, are different. They have a difference. So you might have like different colored cats or whatever. But if there's two different species under, a, 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 if there's different uh, genera, like uh, a whale and a cat, they're obviously different. But God, there's not even a similarity like that between God and us because he's the creator or the creature. And so for the only kind of likeness you can have would be some sort of analogy, some sort of analogous likeness from uh, from creator to created thing or from cause to effect. And when you just, when you just say that out loud, you're like, yeah, that's true. There's not like... The categories he uses are still the kind of categories where you say there's, it's not the same genus because he's not a creature of any kind. <laughs> it's not the same right. species because he's not just like Zeus on a mountain who's a Superman. But in fact, he's so different from us. There's such a distinction between what he is in terms of the order of being that the only kind of likeness there can be is an analogy. Um, and yet he goes beyond that on page 90 on reply to objection three of article three. And it's like, God, you know, he transcends every genus. He's the principle of it all at the same time. So he transcends it all, but is the principle of it. Meaning yeah. he's the creator, right? He's the maker, he's the agent cause. And you're like, so what does that mean? Like it's, it's, it's and then he says, and this is, okay, I might just read this whole objection reply rather. He says, though it may be admitted that creatures are in some sort like God, course it does because he's already quoted genesis 1 creating right. the image of god he believes that it must no wise be admitted that god is like creatures it's like whoa, whoa whoa, wait a minute what but he's making a really important distinction let me keep reading because as dionysius says a mutual likeness may be found between things of the same order so you and i are like each other except for you're cooler than i am no, i'm of a handsome. way higher order than you trust me yeah, yeah more you're smarter than i am cooler than i am have more friends than i am mm-hmm better family and all that kind of stuff but but we're the same order ish um but not so a mutual likeness may be found between things of the same order but not between a cause and that which is caused so like if i made an ice cream cone it's not the same order right and this is even more because god create creates from nothing so it's even beyond that analogy that, that i just gave then he says for we say that a statue is like a man which is, you know, if I'm in a statue of you, of course, but not conversely. So also a creature can be spoken of uh, as in some sort like God. 
but not that God is like a creature. Love it. I think it's a really like simple distinction that protects the uniqueness of God who is beyond all genus, beyond all being. He's, he's a, the creature-creature distinction is so important for Aquinas. I mean, that's the single thing. He doesn't want to collapse. So what you're saying is Aquinas is a Vantillian because he affirms the creator-creature distinction. Vantillian is a Thomist. He just doesn't know it um, <laughs> because he never read Thomas. Or well, he did probably a little bit. Um, whatever. So, but it's it's really, really important. Just these, these basic distinctions, once they're said out loud, you're like, yeah, that does make sense. Like, I don't want to say God is like me. Like, what what a weird thing to say. Yeah. But they're, you know... Like, but, but in a sense, sense we I'm like God, God because I'm because I'm the I'm a creature of God. Yeah, is, by so, way of analogy. By way of analogy, yeah, and that's why Genesis says we're created in the image and likeness of God. But it'd be, but but like as an effect, as a creature who is subsequent to the existence of God, it'd be weird for me to say God's like me. Like yeah. it'd be narcissistic, probably, but it's also irrational. But the moment he says it out loud, you're like, well, yeah. And that's why I think he's so brilliant. He says things out loud that after he says them out loud seem like common sense. Right. All right, you can I talk now because I kind of did well, a whole diatribe. This is, this is, well, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. And um, like in this section here too, like a really key element of like Thomism, I guess you could say, is is starting to come to the fore, which is this whole question of like, what is what is analogy or what is analogical language that we you know use in theology? Um, and that, that's something that sometimes gets debated or, you know, misunderstood or rejected. Um, but analogical language to me is super important. It's, it's similar to the idea of like a metaphor. Um, something is like, or comparable to something else. Uh, and because you can't, you can't look at anything in creation and say, oh, there's like a one-to-one, you know, when the Bible says God is a rock, you can't like look at a rock and say, oh, that's exactly like what God is, because obviously it's not. Um, but there's an analogy between, you know, this, the, this, this strong, you know, foundation of a rock, uh, which is like what God is. Um, but if we were to ascribe rockness to God in a one to one fashion, we would be speaking not analogically, but univocally, right. um, which obviously you can't do with a being who's utter, totally other. Right. Well, why does the Bible liken God to a mountain because a mountain is powerful and strong force of nature, not because God's literally made out of rocks. Why does, for example, I think it's Exodus say that God is long of nose, not because he literally has a long nose because that signified anger. And in that case, why does it say yes? Why does, um, I think it's lamentation say that God's, um, heat rises up within God because literal, uh, blood vessels transport heat, uh, the blood faster to give the sense of like heatedness and rosy cheeks. Well, no, but it's to communicate by analogy something true about God. I mean, one of the easiest ways to think about this is like Zeus would come down a mountain, disguise himself with an animal, and actually impregnate women, all this kinds of crazy stuff. So when Zeus comes down the mountain, it's a literal locomotive movement. But actually, Christians believe that God's omnipresent. And so whatever it means for God to come to us with all these analogies, it's not like that God's like Zeus who comes down a literal mountain. It's actually that we, um, if you're an unbeliever, God's present to you in terms of wrath, because that's what justice can look like against sin. But if you have the imputation of Christ's righteousness, then when you embrace God in Christ, God doesn't move anywhere, but there's a new relation in you to him. Namely, one of grace and compassion and justice looks like vindication 
or I guess justification is the more common word, justification in this sense to us. But God didn't move. God didn't change. He's always just just, and he was always omnipresent. But it's our, it's our experience of him coming to us in grace versus coming to us in um, vindictive justice, we might say. Yeah. But God's never, it's not a change in God. It's a change in us because God's beyond the order of being. He's not just in one place and another place. He's omnipresent. He's immense. You want to use a more normal word. And that, that's just like basically denying the mythology of God. Like he's not Zeus, he's not Hercules, he's not Poseidon, he's God. And so you have to have analogies to make sense of it because we're human, but yet you can't understand them like you'd understand Zeus coming down from Mount Olympus or else you fall into essentially paganism. And it's not just too like the analogical language is not used or, you know, predicated of God and things just you know, even like the way you're talking, it's, you know, God, God has, you know, God rescue, rescues Israel with a mighty arm. There's an analogy there, but it's also an anthropomorphism, right? Where you're ascribing right. uh, the, the human form to God to get at some sort of idea or concept that lies behind it, like God's power. Um, here, like, like the, the question of analogy boils right down to being itself, right? Like, so this is this huge debate that happens in the 20th century um, between Catholics and like kind of like more neo-Orthodox party and Protestants over what's called the analogy of being, you know, Bart, Bart does not like that language. Uh, he, he wants to, you know, he speaks of like the analogy of faith. The only way you can know God is through faith. Um, and it gets into this big debate, but th this is, I, 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 this is an area I mean, maybe it's easy to, to critique a Protestant here because it is Bart, but I think, I think the analogy of being is a better way to understand things. He, you know, Thomas on the bottom of page 89 there, uh, he says, you know, therefore, if there's an agent not contained in any genus, its effects will be more distantly, will more, still more distantly reproduce the form of the agent. Not that is so as to participate in the likeness of the agent's form according to the same specific or generic formality, but only according to some sort of analogy as existence is common to all. In this way, all created things, so far as they are beings, are like God as the first and universal principle of all being. So because God is ipsum esse, is being itself, and because we everything in creation has being, there's an analogy between created being and then being itself, which is most fundamental. And it's obviously it can't be one to one because it's created creature distinction. Um, but then that's th this, I think, lays that groundwork for like when you're talking about like how how can things be good when, you know, in question five, goodness of goodness in general, when you get to the third article on page 92, whether every being is good is the question. He says, every being as being is good uh, for all being as being has actuality and is in some way perfect since every act implies some sort of perfection and perfection implies desirability and goodness as is clear from a uh, answer one. Hence it follows that every being as such is good. So everything because of the analogy of being, everything is actually good because it exists, right? This is why right. evil can't be, can't, evil can't have being because evil doesn't exist, right? So it can never be called a good. Uh, but anything that even is a bad thing because it has existence in some sense is a good. This is why you can actually see goodness in everything, right. even right. when things are bad. And just to, uh, just makes, to it makes us eternally optimistic. Yeah, exactly. And to give the Bible context, Aquinas cites 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, where Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 
So the apostle is clear that everything created by God is good in the present tense. Yeah. And then he says, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So, so while Aquinas is given the logic for why every being is good, because as existence and God is existence, I mean, of course, if you exist, you're good. The Bible also says that. And I think sometimes we get so locked into weird implications of other pieces of theology we can be can become like doomer pilled or black pilled on everything and mm-hmm. feel like everything is evil, everything is bad, there's no goodness. But actually, just the fact that a dog barks outside or that a human walks down the street is evidence of goodness. And so if you look in a room and you only look at the the stain on the wall, of course it'll look bad. But if you look around and see the other walls and the pictures and the bookshelves, you'll see something there. And I think for us, the key is to remember that God's created order is good. By the way, it's, I just want to go on. Sorry. It's interesting, then. Let me, let me just, uh, th- there's an implication here that I've sometimes thought about, um, and I'm not 100% sure what I think about it. But when you get into arguments over annihilationism and the doctrine of hell, uh, because a Thomist, I, I would think, would address that question by saying, it seems like the annihilationist is trying to like make God more just or, or more good. You know, he's not eternally punishing somebody. Uh, so what he does is he just snuffs them out. He annihilates them and removes being from them. But if, as a, as, as what Thomas would here say, uh, being is better than non-being, that would actually be worse of God to cease the existence of someone, to, to, to annihilate them. It would actually be worse of God to annihilate than it would be to actually allow them to exist in hell for eternity because it's better to be than to non-be. But I don't know. Like I feel like ugh, I feel like that sounds right. But then am I on shaky ground by saying that it's it's actually better to be in hell than to not exist at all? You, you know, like you know, it's re- I was reading Tertullian recently, and um, he says he's answering the question: If God, you know, is good and prescient and powerful. Why would he create a world where he knew people would fall into sin? Because he's prescient and he's yeah. good and powerful. And yet people did sin. And therefore, if God's good, he's not, he can't be good, prescient, or powerful, is the, is the conclusion that this guy's drawing from that. It's a uh, who, who is he? I can't remember who he's writing against. And then you got to think about that for a minute. And, and Tertullian says, well, no, 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 no. God is still good. God is still prescient and still powerful. But the reason he created people is he created them to, to essentially have free will. And it was better to have the freedom of choice than not to have choice at all. Meaning if God had created us as like robots, we could never sin and never do anything bad, have no consequences. That would be significantly worse because we would not be like God. We wouldn't have the the freedom of of liberty and all those kinds of stuff. And there's something to that argument that's compelling to me. I got to think through all how it all works, but there's something just, we have a unique connection to God in our ability to have free choice and to have consequences for our choices, whether we meet God's singular justice as wrath, because that's how we experience it, or whether we meet that singular justice as vindication because we're in Christ. There's something about that that's powerful. And Tertullian also says God knew people would fall or else why would Genesis 2.17 say that in the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die? Like yeah. He, but by that warning itself, he knew that they would have the choice that by implication would fall, but that's somehow better. And so something about hell is connected to that in that you choose to go there in the sense of you don't choose Christ, you choose evil and so on. 
and yeah but i don't know how it all works at that point like whether the bean or the essence there is good yeah i, want, I need to talk to somebody who knows Thomas yeah maybe, maybe we get Her, ryan Hurd or somebody on here we can ask them um, um so what so what so he's you know maybe to go back and like just define a couple of things like so for him on question four back to the idea of like what is perfection um, you know, the kind of standard definition of what it means to be perfect and why God himself is going is is perfect is that uh, perfect is something something that's perfect. It doesn't need to be improved upon. Right. It's perfect. Right. And so because God himself is utterly self-sufficient, he needs nothing, um, you know, because he's a, he is this simple being who has no composition, as he's just argued in the previous question, all these sorts of things go into the idea that like. You can't improve upon God. Therefore, he is necessarily perfect. Um, and I think that's a helpful way of describing what perfection is. Yeah. Normally, I've just dis- defined perfection just by my own self. And everybody just seemed to understand what exactly. I was talking about. I, that's what I was going to get at, too. <laughs> but it's like, so for me, I have potential because I'm not you. Like I've, Someone, <laughs> someone might look at me and say, hey, kid, you got potency. potential. You know, you got potential, kid. And if I become <laughs> a great baseball player, I fulfill that potential. Yeah. And that's how you become perfect. That's actually what the Bible basically means or what people basically mean the Bible too, in a sense, like if you read the book of Hebrews, the idea of perfection there is, is, is coming to a a state of holiness from unholiness. It's realizing the, the potential that holiness can come to you by God and then by Christ receiving that holiness. Well, you know, because Hebrews frequently talks about perfection. Even the joke you're making there about potential and actual, like the the fact that God is pure act or pure actus tells us he has to be perfect um and uh he can't because he had and because as we've already seen he has no matter he's not a composite of form and matter he doesn't have a body of those sorts of things because matter is in that state of becoming so it's always in a state of change meaning it's never yet been perfected it's always in a state of potency god is perfect why because he's pure being he's pure actuality therefore nothing can be because of the purity of it nothing can improve upon it so therefore he is perfect and just the matter thing is important. Like I'm made of matter. So I have a circadian rhythm and I have to sleep and wake up. And if I might, if I mess up that circadian rhythm, I'll be a little bit more tired. But if I get it, if I do it just right that day, I'll be realizing that potential, but maybe I'll have a little blood sugar that day. So I need to balance that out. So matter is always an emotion and changing like that. It's not that it's incorrect for me to have those ups and downs. Yeah, It'd be really hard to conceive of God having matter because you'd have all those ups and downs unless you conceive of that matter just like being nothing like anything else we see like you'd say well his circadian rhythm is perfect or he doesn't need it and his blood sugar is perfect or he doesn't need it you can go through this whole list but when you do that what it actually does is it makes reality a lie because if uh love or matter or whatever that i see and experience that god's given me to know is not true for him then everything's a lie yeah, it's just like, you know, people say like, um, you have to define love by what the Bible says, and then sometimes they cherry pick their verses, and love really seems like you're a big jerk, you know. <laughs> well, I and you're so. like, if everybody was deceived on when they see love and experience it, because everyone experiences it at one point usually, if that's all a big deception and love is just, no one can experience it outside the Bible. If you read a Bible verse, that's love. And everything's a lie. And God created a world of shadows that have no sense of truth, them, no analogous truth to them. No are, ability. Are, you saying, are you saying this by this then that like only a person who understands love in a biblical way actually really loves 
but anybody who's not like predicating love by the Bible, uh, therefore really can't actually truly know or, or experience love. Is that, what, is that what you mean? I think so. What I'm trying to say, oh, maybe here's an example, make it more clear. If I see two people, a couple, a man and a woman, and they love each other, I kind of look at them and say, I can experience that same love. Or I can say, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> but the hope that you can experience the same love is the hope that your senses and your being like there's there's love is real because yeah. God made it that way. And yeah. so like going back to the discussion, what I'm trying to get is like, if we just say, well, God has a body or has matter because his blood is not our blood, his flesh is not our, like you just go this whole list, then everything is just kind of, Oh, I see. It's just a lie. Like it's, you just, it's just made up and there's no truth. Right. So it's really only through this analogy of being that we can, I think, come to anyways understand things but yes of course there's the theological virtue of love and so on so there's more to that i was just trying to give some examples i think it can be i think we need to in short you can trust your senses yeah things are real and that's okay yeah and you can you can trust the funny thing is, is too like with the whole common sense notions you can actually trust your intuitions like in, in a way yeah you know maybe not completely but we all we all have you know, like the French Thomist um, Jacques Maritain uh, brought up this whole question of like the intuition of being. And uh, like we have these like natural intuitions towards things. It's just who we're made to be. Right. And right. and and that that, that kind of like baseline knowledge that we've just assumed we don't even know, always like we haven't even worked it out uh, is more often true than not, you know? Yep. So let's yeah, keep moving so. here. Uh, so this is an interesting question on page 88, whether whether the perfections of all things are in God. So like created perfections and uh, Peter Kreef doesn't give us any of the objections and, and, and whatnot. He just gives Thomas's statement here. But it's a really neat one um, broken down into two parts where he says all created perfections are in God. Hence, he is spoken of as universally perfect because he doesn't lack anything. Right. He lacks not. Uh, any excellence, which may be found in any genus. Uh, this may be seen from two considerations. Uh, first, because whatever perfection exists in an effect must be found in the effective cause, which God is. And secondly, uh, from what has already been proved, God is existence itself, of itself subsistent. Consequently, he must contain within himself the whole perfection of being. So all the perfections that we see in anything else, and perfections here just means that like, it's it's doing what it's supposed to be doing right like when you see a bird fly there's a perfection there as it's using its wings to fly because that's what it was made to do right and uh, and that when you see the bird doing that sort of act that's you know a perfection in it um you actually then can by way of analogy see that god is in that perfection uh which is really uh again i think it this sort of thing helps me see god in everything uh, reading thomas on these you see, it's all of a sudden you're like everything that I'm looking at, and again affirming the creator-creature distinction, like what he is, what we were just talking about, how things are like God, but God's not like things. Um, it just helps me. Question is going to get to that really specifically. This real, this this is really God's world, and it really does point to Him in every facet. I sort of was trying to get it before. It's like. If I see the moon, I can trust my senses that God made a beautiful moon that orders times and seasons, as Genesis says. When I read the Bible, I have a deeper understanding and maybe a fuller and more, more truthful understanding. But I, I just can see it. Like God made us to trust our senses. And we can because things are real. Uh, question eight the existence of God in things, which is really what you're getting at. We're not there yet, but yeah, it's an interesting one where he kind of explains in what way is God in all things. 
but it's basically through cause and effect, efficient cause and so on. But I think like, again, like this is one of those things where when you read it out loud, it makes sense. Like if God's the effective cause, the creator, well, of course he can't make something that is outside of his purview of himself. Like this would be nonsense. It's straightforward. And then secondly, because he is existence itself, therefore must be the perfection of it. There has to be, you know, some, he has to have the perfections that are, that are in creation as well. And so like, it actually changes how you just think about enjoying life. Like if you're an astronomer or you just like, like stargazing, that's what you're actually doing is seeing something of God. Oh yeah. A created effect of God, but something of God in the, in the, you know, relaxed sense. Yeah. And like, that's, that's wonderful. Like yeah. you might see the magnitude of God, the wonder of God, the sea, like God, the ordering of God, because God used the stars to order times and seasons and so on. The North star gives you a direction, like all this kind of stuff. Right. It's like really just changes how you appreciate the world. And because everything God created, everything God created is good. Paul says, and we, I don't know, man, we just, sometimes you fall into like black pill traps where everything is just dour and boring and sad and you can't be happy and everything's a trial and nothing is good and life will always suck. And it's like, well, you will go through trials and tribulations, but the, the reason they're called trials and tribulations is because they're temporary. Right. Some people have longer ones and maybe it will be the resurrection or, or, or death that will be released from that particular trial. I get that. But the point is that these are moments. These are episodes in the story of God's progressive glory. Yeah. I mean, the church wins. Like, I, I was, you know, I was talking about this to someone earlier today. Like, most of our music is either good praise songs of God, crowned with many crowns, or pilgrim songs like "Be Still My Soul." And the individual pilgrim songs are like, we need those because often we need to be still my soul. But rarely do we sing songs about like, like, oh, church arise, or just like the the unbounding confidence that we can have that God is going to accomplish his mission to the church. Cause he is. Yeah. He, he wins. We go through trials and tribulations. We need to be still my soul. We need to praise him. But in the middle, we need that, that confidence. Like God is the actual God of the universe. Like Islam's not going to win. Just FYI. <laughs> like the yeah. Mormons are not going to take over. The uh, progressive culture of Canada is not going to win. It's an episode, but one episode in the story of God's glory. Like it yeah. doesn't, it matters a lot for sure in how we order our life now and we need to do good and so on. But at the end of the day, like the confidence we should have that we're going to win or not God's going to win is like, it should be there. Just one moment. Yep. So we had a, a moment of a, a parental moment just there. You being a good dad. That's all. Uh, so. I'll say the last thing that I want you to talk is I've said too many words. If you're, if you're like Twitter timeline is everything is horrible and we have to be panicked about everything yeah. and everything is outrage, like you've missed the gospel, yeah. like the, uh, the major implication of it, I should say. Yeah. I mean, there's some people, you know, who, who I mute on Twitter and then like maybe like once every couple of months, I'll just go jump in on their Twitter just to see what's up. And you're like, wow, it's exactly the same as when I muted you. It's just all, you know, it's just doom and gloom the whole way through and uh yeah i mean they become like one trick ponies and don't actually understand the goodness of god right or they're not taking it seriously everything um, god created is good 
how do you like my segue into that right question I five. like it goodness um, of god question five in general <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it is interesting, right? That he does he de- he has to deal with the question of goodness first uh, before then he moves into the goodness of God, right? So laying out what does it mean that what we're actually talking about when we're talking about goodness, and he answers it right there uh, with the quote from Aristotle's Ethics on page ninety one: "Goodness is what all desire." So what what, it, what is the good? The good is that which we desire. And so he's going to lay that out, obviously, then and, and move into the next question, question six, by showing that God is is good because God is the ultimate source of all desires. And uh, in the, the human soul cannot desire something that it, it believes to be not good. Um, so, you know, the this, this soul can desire perceived goods that, that actually turn out to be bad. But the soul itself thinks that that bad thing is actually good and then will act towards right. it. Right. And then what he what he says some really interesting things in this, right? Like he starts out after he after his on the contrary, where he quotes from Augustine's De Doctrina, he says, I answer that goodness and being are really the same and differ only in idea. Um, and so if God is the good, God is goodness itself, uh, and God is being. And if, as we saw in the earlier question, that God is simple, meaning that there's no composition of him, so he's not a composite of goodness and being. Um, therefore, it makes sense for him to say that goodness right. and being are really the same thing, right? The essence of goodness consists in this that is in some way desirable. And so we desire God, we desire being, we desire to be rather than not to be. All that makes total sense to me. But then from our point of view, goodness relates to the appetite and beauty to the cognitive faculty. Isn't that what he says? Yeah, which I thought also was really cool. He does that on page 93, right? Where he's saying basically not only is goodness and being not only are they the same thing in his reply to objection one he says beauty and goodness in a thing are identical fundamentally uh for they are based upon the same thing namely the form and consequently goodness is praised as beauty but they differ logically for goodness properly relates to the appetite and therefore it has the aspect of an end on the other hand beauty relates to the cognitive faculty for beautiful things are those which please when seen. Hence, beauty consists in due proportion. So, I mean, it's it's really cool. Like, but he's, what he's saying is they're the same thing. But when they hit the human person, right? Like when they hit you at the level of the soul, beauty is something that hits you cognitively, and you feel a certain degree of pleasure from seeing the beauty, which he which he is defining as proportionality, right? So things that are in proportion, that there's a harmony of fittingness to them, that's beautiful. But that which is good is something that hits at the level of our appetites, right? The things that we desire, you know, the level of right. will and that sort of thing. They're basically the same thing. They're just, the difference is actually hit it as, as they actually like, you know, hit me <laughs> and as I'm processing them. Uh, in terms of my soul. And I think that's just such a cool way to think of things. And I think we're kind of like everything is so sexualized today that we think of beauty as like a like a, a sexually attractive person or whatever. But like beauty is the re- beauty is attract like t- attractive. Like that's a definition. Like it, it attracts your your caught your mind. It's it could be a beautiful painting. It could be music. It could be a sunset. It could just be a moment where you're like, there's something profoundly beautiful and, and we kind of all know it. We might not have the words for it in, in 2023. We forgot the vocabulary of it, but goodness is the same thing. Like we all want perceived goodness. Like sometimes it's subjective and we're wrong, but we yeah. all want, we all desire. And I'm just like, uh, sorry, I, I'm, I always read the Bible. So it's my, it's my 
big weakness. But Psalm 145.13 says, you open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. And then go down, verse 19, God or he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. And it's like, God is the desire of the nations. Because whenever everyone desires something good, a created good, that is an effect of the effective cause, which is God. When someone sees and appreciates beauty, even if it's they're subjectively a bit corrupt in it, they are um, cognating something of God. And so God is the real desire of every of the nations. God's the real goal of all of our yearnings. God is the one who uh, brings rest to that sort of restlessness, is always looking for more beauty and more goodness or more satiation. We, we probably think more in terms of consumption today than beauty and goodness. So we all want to satisfy our, our drive to consumption, a new phone, more food, m- whatever it is, more TV, more video games. More but scrolling. actually that, what did you say? More scrolling, just scroll, more scroll, scrolling. Scroll. Yeah, the dopamine kick or whatever it is. But, but what, what actually uh, Aquinas seems to be saying is goodness and beauty and usefulness we'll find later. All of this is essentially, well, usefulness is a bit different, but this is actually just getting us to to recognize something about God. Beauty and goodness in a thing are identical fundamentally. Yeah. And and it, it this is an interesting then kind of takeaway from it is that uh, the whole movement to reject beauty more generally, Ugh, yeah. you know, at the level of aesthetics, whether that's art, whether that's uh, architecture, um, anything, I think is actually an attack on God. I think that the reason why we want to celebrate that which is ugly and we want to destroy things that which are the, the that which is beautiful is ultimately because God, you know, as he's saying, these the beauty and goodness are identical. Being and goodness are identical. They're all God. Like God is beauty. God, you know, the the, the transcendentals. That's just what God is. And uh, and so you know, just reflecting on things like if I can get a little political and controversial and get myself canceled here. But when you think of something like the trans movement and like this big push, you know, and like you, you you see on social media, all these videos and images of it, all of it's ugly. Like it's just objectively ugly what's happening. And I can't help but see it as, a, as an attack on God's own beauty, um, the uglification of things. You know, I, I think it's why Christians really do need to be concerned about aesthetics and really understand what beauty actually is. Well, if sin is against God and nature and that which is okay. natural and is proportional and is it's whatever nature is potentially it, it can be realized, can be fulfilled. You know, you plant a seed and it becomes a tree. You know, you like that kind of idea. If, if we twist all of that, then there's a sense in which we're sinning against nature. Yeah. And by nature, I simply mean the order that God has created. And it's so it's God's world. So, you know, that's what I'm getting at, not just nature as an abstract thing. Yeah, and, really... and it... Oh, go ahead. No, I, you go, because I, I want to just read a paragraph of, of him after you're done. Well, it's just, it's interesting along those lines, right? Because it, he's addressing the question, uh, whether goodness has an aspect of a final cause, which is this fourth article here on page 93. And, you know, everything, you know, final causality is so important. Like, what is everything moving towards ultimately? What are those desires that, that 
that we're we're fixating on? What is that final cause by which we the desire is met? And um, I, I think what's happening is when you see all this like real, real ugliness, like an anti-beauty push in our culture, uh, it is, it's that denial of what nature is, right? If you're made, if, if your soul determines your, what your body is going to be, right? The form determines the matter. So the soul determines the body. So if the soul determines the body of a female, it must, you must argue back then that the soul, there's something, I don't know if you could call it female or feminine, but there's something in the soul that makes that body female. And then when you go to distort that by changing the physical body into a male body, even though it's supposed to be, there's an ugliness, there's like a bentness to nature, bentness to final causality that happens that I think our intellects just pick up on. Like when we see a person who is transitioned, say, there's something about them that just seems off. And if you meet somebody or you see a picture of an, of someone so who's a male to female trans, trans person, and that, that person actually does initially make you think it's a woman, and then you realize it was actually a man, you feel deception. Like, I just feel in me like, oh, I was just really duped there. And that there, there's just, there's this, this, I think, a fundamental unease that I don't know that we could ever really get away from. Yeah, you have these kind of memes say, like, like um, what women want in a man, it's a whole list. And then it's like, what uh, men want in a woman, it's like, I hope she has... Or, xy chromosome or uh what what is it is xy i can't remember xy yeah xy chromosomes and you're like yeah because um i saw this reddit so who knows if it's real but like this person who explained like hey i was dating someone for a while and then i revealed to him that i'm you know i'm a transition female and he was really upset like am i the you know (laughs) am i the bad person in this situation and it's like if that was a real comment, not just a troll, I do think it's a confusing time. Cause like, could you imagine dating someone for like a month and they were like, Hey, by the way, I transitioned, like, how would you feel? And I, you know, it might sound horrible, but I, I would, the vast majority of men, the vast majority of men would feel like that was deception and kind of not what they wanted. And honestly, I think the guy, the the guy that says that he's okay with it has to, I think he has to convince himself of that. I don't think it's a natural yeah, yeah I, there's a difference between saying you're okay with something and then dating that person. I think what you what I expect that we will see is that a lot of the people who signal their virtue by saying that they're notionally good with it will not be swiping. I don't know how these work. Swiping right. I don't. <laughs> I've never used it in yet, but I'm sure it's some, it's whatever that is. Yeah. Like they're not going to be. Um, they're not going to then act, and I think there's going to be a mis. People are going to realize, hey, wait a minute, you said you would be okay with this, but in reality, no one's dating me. And yeah. I suspect that will be more common. So um, there's there's one last piece I want to get into, even though... Well, we, need to do the, we do need to do question six and talk about God's goodness, for sure. Yeah, w- w- what I really liked uh, on page 96, the third article of question six, yeah, is whether to be essentially good belongs to God alone. And it reminded me, is it Matthew 19, whatever it is, when um, I think it's the rich young ruler asked Jesus. Um, oh, right. Yeah. You know, and Jesus says, why do you call no me good? Nobody good. is good but God alone. And it, it, you kind of read that sometimes and you think, well, but isn't Jesus divine? You're like, well, yeah, but he's doing this in order to elicit a response. And so you kind of get that. But I, I kind of think 
maybe Thomas has this in mind a little bit when I read this. Maybe not intentionally per se, but there's something that helps me. Yeah. Yeah. So he says, I answer that God alone is good essentially. So we use the word essentially today like uncarefully, but what he means by that is the essence of God is good. The nature of God is good. What God is is goodness itself. He's simple, right? For everything called is called good according to its perfection. You know, so we, that's been defined earlier. Now, perfection of a thing is threefold. First, according to the cons, constitute, consti, wait, constitution of its own being. Secondly, in respect of any accidents being added as necessary for its perfection, perfect operation. Thirdly, perfection consists in the attaining to something else as the end. Now, this is really brilliant, I think. He says, this triple perfection belongs to no creature by its own essence. So all created with potential. Even Adam and Eve, right? They had to, they had potential. Um, it belongs to God only in whom alone essence is existence, this constitution, in whom yep. there are no accidents. He already is fulfilled. Since whatever belongs to others accidentally belongs to him, essentially, we already know this. All the perfections are in God. And he is not directed to anything else as to an end. He's the end itself, right? But is himself the last end of all things. Love it. Like he can't want more because he is all. Hence, it is manifest that God alone has every kind of perfection by his own essence. Therefore, he himself alone is good, essentially. I don't know. I just, you kind of read that and you think at first you're like, okay, it's complicated. But when, when you start parsing it, you're like, that's so satisfying. Because it's not like it warms your heart like maybe like a, a Bible verse sometimes might or like a good a hug might, but it actually warms your mind. Meaning <laughs> when you read that for a while and you think about what he's saying, it's like, yeah, that's so true and so right. And that's why God's not like me. Yeah, you know? it's cool too. I mean, that whole idea, right? Like he's not, God's not directed to anything else to as to an end because he he is right but everything is directed towards right he is that end because so he is himself the end of all things so he's direct i mean you could say maybe he's directed to himself you know um but right. he, he can't there can be nothing that he can point to that's higher that's greater that's more perfect more desirable more good more beautiful or anything like that because that's just who he is when you when you and it's just like when it dawns on you when that hit when that that re, that thought enters into your mind and you actually like contemplating like wow like that that's who God is, you know, the whole question of final cause, you know, that's been blown apart. Modern philosophy needs to be recaptured. Listen, all, all, all of our listeners, all three of them beyond you and me need to get this book, the order of things by Gary Lagrange, because he gets into all this stuff. And again, it's like one of these books that just kind of blows your mind, but while it's blowing your mind, it's expanding it too. Yep. Uh, where, where he's arguing philosophically through all this stuff about final causality. That's just great. Um, the fourth article to the very end of our reading for today, like there's some brilliant things in there too. It says what, whether all things are good by the divine goodness says on the contrary, all things are good in as much as they have been. So it's already established, right? They exist and therefore they're good, but they're not called beings through the divine being active existing, but through their own being. Therefore, all things are not good by divine goodness, but by their own goodness. Like we're actually, we're not in God. We're not pantheists essentially. Right. Right. I answer that everything is therefore called good from the divine goodness as from the first exemplary, effective, and final principle of all goodness. So effective in the sense of like uh, the first cause, the agent cause, and final because the the uh, the, the purpose that we were just talking about. So he's the principle of the beginning and the end. 
Nevertheless, everything is called good by reason of the similitude, which is so key. It's an analogy stuff right there again. Yeah, the divine goodness belonging to it, which is formerly its own goodness, whereby it is denominated good. And so all things, so of all things, there is one goodness and yet many goodnesses, the one, the many, and so on. It's just like, yeah. you're kind of brilliant when you think about it. And I think it was question eight where he'll talk like how God is in everything, not like a pantheist, but because he's the creator. There's, yeah. there's a real connection to us because we, if you and I exist, like, and I don't just mean our hearts are pumping, but our, when, when my body is decomposing, my soul is going to be alive. And then at the resurrection, my soul and body will be reunited. So any, if anyone exists, it, it's because of God. Yeah. So there is some connection that's pretty profound. And if you just stop and think about it for a while, it's pretty like crazy just to contemplate. Yeah, it's the whole analogia entis analogy of being stuff like right there good place to end and let's not define our terms i like it <laughs>